mercy and peace be with you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I was sitting in the auditorium of my high school. I was 15 years old. I was surrounded by all my buddies that I had been practicing football with in the hot summer sun twice a day for the last few weeks of the summer when the head varsity football coach stepped up on the stage to begin announcing the starting roster for the first varsity football game of the season. I was a sophomore in high school, 15 years old, and I heard in that starting roster my name, Aaron Gierke. I was the only one in my sophomore class to skip right over junior varsity and go right to the varsity team. I was slightly nervous, but I was also a bit proud. I mean, I'd been working out with these guys all summer long, and frankly, I outlifted most of them in the weight room. I ran faster than them, and I hit harder than them. So it made sense that I was going to be on the varsity team. But I remember getting a phone call from my older brother, Seth, who had just graduated high school and was now in college, and he was a successful football player. And I remember him telling me, Aaron, don't let it go to your head. Be humble. I'll admit I tried, but then came that opening night, varsity football, and I was playing middle linebacker, and I like to tackle and hit people hard. So if you ever want to tackle and hang out in the field, let's just call me and let's do that. It'd be fun. But uh, in, that, in that game, I was, I was bigger and stronger than a lot of the people playing football that day, and that, especially that running back who I demolished. And I remember crushing him to the ground multiple times. And then as any 15-year-old testosterone-ridden boy, I stood over the top of him and said things like, stay down, this is my field, and some other stuff that I shouldn't say. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, pastor's an athlete, a competitor? I didn't know. <laughs> That's not what the captain of the football team said, though. In a humbling moment for me, after standing over this poor running back, he said, Aaron chill out, or something to that effect. <laughs> and I remember in the middle of the football field that moment, I respected the captain of the football team, and I respected my brother, and I respected the coaches. And I remember, it may not seem like much to you in this moment, but that was a humbling experience for me. Obviously still sitting with me to this day. And I tried from that point on to lead with humility instead of pride and arrogance. I'm not saying it stopped me from being intense on the football field, but it was a mental and attitudinal shift. You could say, I needed to be put in my place. <laughs> in Daniel chapter 4, today we are in Daniel chapter 4, and King Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn his lesson. You could say he needed to be put in his place. 
If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament for the last three weeks. This is week four, so we're in Daniel chapter four. And if you've been with us, you've seen in the previous three weeks that it seems like King Nebuchadnezzar, this big Babylonian powerful king, has had a change of heart at different times, seeming to say and even confess with his own lips that the God of Daniel and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he is a powerful God. I mean, even from the lips of the king, he said, you are God of gods and Lord of kings. You are a powerful God. You are, you are, you are eternal and powerful. He said it in every chapter. But now we're in Daniel chapter 4. And between Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 4, there's been some time that has passed. Last week, we were in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace. Uh, between that point and Daniel chapter 4 is a time span of about three decades, so about 30 years. We've been telling you how Daniel and his friends were these young teenagers taken captive to this foreign land. Well, now they're, let's put them at about 50 years old. Remember, they've all gotten promotions. They've been serving in the administration of King Nebuchadnezzar for the last three decades. Three decades. This is plenty of time for King Nebuchadnezzar to have continued to build up the Babylonian Empire, accumulate wealth and power and prestige, which he has been doing. And it's also been plenty of time for him to forget about some of those experiences with the Most High God. In chapter 4, the king is in a season of life where things are going really well for himself. In chapter 4, verse 4, if you're following along in your Bible, chapter 4, verse 4, the king says this, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, right? He's got his feet up, sitting poolside, sipping Mai Tais, right? So he is just loving life. Everything was going well for the king when he had a troubling dream in the middle of the night. Now, we saw a similar situation unfold in Daniel chapter 2, where the king had a troubling dream. And when the king has troubling dreams, he calls upon the wise men, the enchanters, and the magicians to interpret the dream. Well, in Daniel chapter 2, they couldn't do it. But here in Daniel chapter 4, he does it again. He's got this troubling dream, so he calls upon the wise men, the enchanters, and the magicians to try to interpret the dream, and they can't do it. So the king remembers Daniel, and Daniel, at this point, he's no mere wise man. He is an important government official. And so he's got to call Daniel over from, you know, the neighboring government offices and be like, hey, Daniel, I need help with this dream. I know you can do it. So the king tells Daniel the dream, and Daniel listens, and Daniel understands, and Daniel is reluctant <laughs> to tell the king what it means. He, he actually even says to the king, O oh, king, uh, let this dream be upon your enemies and not upon you. <laughs> He's so reluctant to, to tell the king the dream because it's so bad. Yet he has to do it. Now, I'm not going to belabor the, all the details of the dream. You can read about it yourselves. I'm going to more focus on the interpretation, but I'll tell you this a little bit. Essentially, the king dreams about a giant tree, 
and this giant powerful tree that all the birds and the animals take shelter in and find their food uh, there under the protection. It's basically a dream telling the king about his empire, his power, his wealth, his prestige, and all of his loyal subjects. But in the dream, the tree is cut down, but a stump remains, and uh, angels, holy ones, messengers they're called in the scriptures, show up to King Nebuchadnezzar in this dream. This is chapter 4, verse 17. And they say, King, this is the reason that this, you are having this dream. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So in his dream, these angels are telling the king, king, you're going to be cut down just to a stump in order to prove to you again that the Most High God, Daniel's God, is the one who establishes kings and erases kingdoms. Not you, Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel has to interpret this dream and tell Nebuchadnezzar this truth. So Daniel tells the king, this is what's going to happen to you, king. Some way, somehow, you're going to be cut down. Your power is going to be stripped away from you. You're essentially going to be humiliated. And you're going to end up looking like an animal, eating grass like an ox with dew on your back. And it's going to last you for seven years. So that was that. Uh, A troubling dream for the king and a troubling interpretation for Daniel to have to give to the king. But then the king went to sleep that night and woke up the next morning and nothing happened. And then the next day, nothing happened. Everything was the same. Day after day, week after week, month after month, for a whole year, nothing, nothing happened. The dream didn't come fulfilled. Twelve months. That's enough time for the king to have forgotten about this troubling dream, or at least to have pushed it to the back of his mind, till one day the king is on the rooftop of his palace, looking out over Babylon and his little subjects, and saying to himself, all this I have created, all of this power, all this wealth, and it's mine for my majesty and my glory and as the words are coming out of his mouth, another voice from heaven comes to him and says to him right now, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately, something snapped in the king's mind. He went a little loco, you could say, and he was driven out of the palace, driven out of his kingdom, and he became like an ox, eating grass. His hair grew long, his fingernails grew long for seven years. But the stump still remained, which means that King Nebuchadnezzar was still technically king. Nobody took his place. So 
I don't know if people were covering for him in this state for a while, but he will get reestablished and there's more to come in his kingship. So there's just this state of him getting chopped down, turning like an animal for quite a while. And at the end of this seven years, the king, he, he comes back and he says, eventually he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he praised God who lives and rules and reigns forever and ever and whose dominion continues for generation after generation. And after he did that, his reason returned to him, his throne was reestablished, and more power was given to him than he even had beforehand. But the concluding words of chapter 4 are very, very important. These are the last words of King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, verse 37. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That last line, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. This king obviously needed to be put in his place, taught a lesson about who is really in charge. When I was a young teenager, I needed to be put in my place and taught who was really in charge. It wasn't my football team. I was not the team. I got to be part of the team, but it could be given or taken away from me at any moment. It was a lesson I had to learn, a lesson I've had to learn on repeat daily. This is a lesson that is applied to every one of us. And ultimately, what we need to know is that what has been given to us in this life is actually more than we even deserve. You know, there are a lot of scriptural examples about living life in humility. King Nebuchadnezzar is one example. We read about one in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 today, but my favorite example in scripture is this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, which we heard read today. It's oftentimes called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or as I could tell it from the first-person perspective in a modern-day example, the pastor and the politician. The pastor and the politician went to the same church, and one day, one Sunday morning, the pastor came to church, and he spoke well. He sang well, he prayed well, and he looked to God and he said, God, I wake up every morning and I read the Bible just to grow closer to you in my daily devotions. And then on top of that, throughout the day, I read the Bible in my preparations for the sermons to give to these people. I pray all of the time. I, I counsel people. I, I give 10% of my income to your work. I, it's all I do. I just talk about you over and over and over again. I'm, I'm, I don't know what else I could do for you, God. I, I'm really glad I'm not, not like one of these sinners. And in the back row of the church, the politician, crooked as they come, as the congregation stood and sat, he couldn't do it. With hand 
in or his face and the palms of his hands, the only thing he could muster were whispers muttered into the palms of his hands. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That crooked politician left church that day in more of a right relationship with God than the pastor. Because as Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18, whoever humbles himself before the Lord will be exalted. That means lifted up. And whoever exalts himself before the Lord will be humbled. Humility, it goes hand in hand with our Christian walk. It has to. And what you will find about living life in humility is that you actually live life with Jesus. You know, to be a Christian means to be like Christ, literally. And who is Jesus Christ? Absolutely humble. I told you the story of a Babylonian king, right? A powerful emperor, right? Who was humbled and made to look like an animal eating grass. I mean, talk about a fall from grace, right? Talk about a humiliating experience. But Jesus himself started at a higher place and went to a lower place. Because Jesus is God, the creator of all that exists. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King above kings, the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, who is sovereign and supreme and powerful. And and he, in Christ, humbled himself by becoming a human who went to the lowliest places of the earth. Because Jesus Christ came into this world for the poor and the prostitutes. Jesus Christ came into this world for the outcasts and the awkward. Jesus came into this world for the sick and the sinner. And Jesus finished his course in life by going to the lowliest place, death, even death, on a cross. Why did Jesus go to such low places? In order to lift us up. He went below us to lift us up. Think about that. Like, I don't know, like a forklift. It's got to go below the pallet to lift it up. Jesus went below us to lift us up, to bring us out of darkness into light, out of death and into life. It's what Jesus does. This is who our God is. Man, I've had to learn this lesson time and time again in my life. I'm sure many of you have as well. And I'm grateful for those lessons in hindsight of being humbled, not always so grateful for them in the moment, but in hindsight, with God as my God, I am grateful. Now, now don't get me wrong, I am not standing before you today to say I'm the most humble person in this room, right? That would be a not humble thing to say. I am a work in progress, sinner just like you, begging for God's mercy to be upon me, a sinner. But in case you're sitting there wondering, what does it mean practically to live life in humility? How do I do this? What am I supposed to do to live life humbly? 
Let me give you five practical tips towards living a humble life. This list is not exhaustive by any means. There could be a lot more stuff included in here, but let me give you them one at a time. First of all is this. Confess your own sins before God. This is where it all begins. It must, right? Just like that tax collector, right? God be merciful to me, a sinner. If you don't acknowledge that there is a God, you'll never find a true humility. But if you put yourself in that position of, of admitting your frailties, your brokenness, your desperate need of Him, you better believe that's a humbling experience, especially when He forgives you and gives you His grace. The second, listen to others. Don't let your own voice be the only voice that you hear, living in an echo chamber of your own pride and arrogance. <laughs> Three, give credit to other people. There are plenty of people around you that contribute to your success. Don't forget them and give credit to them publicly. Four, ask for feedback on your own actions. Right? Ask for feedback because you will find that you're not always doing things right. <laughs> and finally, be grateful for what you've been given. Here's a, a, just a practical challenge for you. On this list of five, maybe there's one that is in particular more difficult for you than another. So this week, throughout the week, pay attention to it. And try to put it in practice. If not all five, at least one. Try to make a conscious effort. Now again, why would we do this? What is the point of living life in humility? Again, when we humble ourselves before Christ, He will lift us up. When we humble ourselves confessing our sin, He will lift us up. If you come before your God and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, I proclaim to you today you are forgiven. You are loved. God will never leave you, never forsake you, never abandon you. He will lift you up to life everlasting. And when we humble ourselves before other people, we get to lift them up. And when we lift them up in Christ, they will see Christ in us. Amen.